please, to Nehemiah chapter 5. And I hope, I hope by now that you can find Nehemiah in the Old Testament. This is our sixth message on uh, Nehemiah, and we'll probably finish up somewhere around 12 to 15 messages on, on the book of Nehemiah. But I'd like you to open Nehemiah chapter 5. How many of you, when you wake up in the morning sometimes, you just sort of have that blasé feeling where you know before you even get up that it's going to be a bad day? I mean, you just get the feeling that all the world is against you. Nothing is going to go right. Before you ever get a, get, even get out of bed, it's going to be a bad day. If you live in a family where you have problems, family problems, uh, things like a bad day can be seriously compounded for you. If you try to retreat into your work where there might also be problems, you find that you can't do that. And you come home and you try to retreat into your family to get away from the problems of work, and that doesn't work because you've also got family problems. And for many Christians, for many people in the world, it really looks like a lose-lose situation for you. Well, if you've ever felt like that, then you probably get the idea of how Nehemiah felt. As he tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there were problems everywhere that he went. On the outside, that there were problems, and we learned that in chapter 4 as we studied. There were problems on the outside. The enemies of Nehemiah and of the Jews were determined that the walls of Jerusalem would not be rebuilt. And so the people that surrounded Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem, they mocked the Jews, they made fun of them, they ridiculed And when that didn't work, they resorted to threats of violence. And so Nehemiah had to stem that tide by arming the people. Remember we talked about that last week, how he had to arm the people even as they worked on the wall to defend themselves. Well, no sooner had Nehemiah conquered that problem than problems arose on the inside. And very often, problems that we have on the inside are much worse than the problems that we have on the outside. Now, at least when you're... When your problems come from without, you can build a fort, you can surround yourself, you can fortify yourself. But when the troubles come from the inside, it doesn't make any difference how high you build the walls because you're cordoned in with your enemy. You're right there among them. And that's exactly what Nehemiah faced. So chapter 5, what we're going to study tonight, is about troubles on the inside. While Nehemiah was fighting everything from the outside, there's trouble brewing on the inside. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Years ago in the Pogo comic strip, how many know who Pogo is? Well, some of you, of us old-timers, we know who Pogo is. And Pogo made a statement in uh, one of the comic strip. He said, we have met the enemy and he is us. And very often, the troubles that we have as Christians come from the inside. Our worst enemies are found among Christians many times and sometimes among those that are even in our own church. Well, I want to read some things here from the fifth chapter tonight. Let's begin the message by reading just a few verses in the first part of Nehemiah chapter 5. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to start with verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 6. Nehemiah 5, verse number 1. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Now, you might pay attention or underline that phrase, and of their wives, because that's important. For there were that said, We are sons, and our daughters are many. Therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also there were there that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. And dearth there means a famine. 
There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Then Nehemiah says in verse number 6, And I was very wroth, or very angry, when I heard their cry and these words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you might help us to glean some truths from this fifth chapter of Nehemiah, that we might understand what we need to do when troubles come from the inside and how we need to turn strictly to you and look to you for our help. So bless in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just set the stage for you once again as we talk about uh, the problems that we see in this fifth chapter of Nehemiah. As you know uh, from our studies so far that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. In 583 B.C., the Babylonians came and they conquered the Jewish nation. And most of the people were deported into other lands. The Babylonians conquered Israel. And then after the Babylonians, the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians. And so the Jews began to be scattered in many different parts of the world. Well, as we come here to... Uh, this fifth chapter of Nehemiah and the first part of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was living in Jerusalem, or rather in Persia at the time, and he heard about the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And he heard that how his people had tried before to rebuild these walls. Their attempts had uh, failed. They'd been unsuccessful. And so that wall of Jerusalem, after all of these years, was still laid waste and was desolate. So Nehemiah determined that he would travel to Jerusalem and he would rebuild the walls of the city. When he arrived, he found that the situation was far worse than he imagined because the walls were indeed broken down. But the people that he had to work with to try to build those walls once again were very discouraged people. As I said, they'd already tried to do this and they hadn't been able to do it. And so they were very defeated people. So what Nehemiah had to do first of all was to change the minds of the people. And he tried to make them realize that rebuilding this wall was something they were doing for God. This was God's work that they were doing. So first of all, this was for God. But then he also reminded them that rebuilding the wall was for their future. And it was also for their families. And so when the people believed what Nehemiah said, when they heard this, they were encouraged. And so they began to work. But it wasn't long before after the the building started that opposition arose. The Gentiles, the people that lived around Jerusalem, did not want to see a fortified Jerusalem once again. And they knew that if the city walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, if the city was inhabited once again, that Jerusalem would be a trade city because it laid on the trade routes. And that would take away the trade of their cities. So this would disturb the status quo of the region. And uh, Jerusalem would once again be a great city. And so they bitterly opposed the rebuilding effort. They threatened with violence to keep this from happening. And so Nehemiah had to counter that attack. As I said just a moment ago, he armed the people as they worked. Then meanwhile, we come here to chapter 5, and there's a new set of problems that's facing the rebuilding effort. During the time that the wall was being rebuilt, there was a famine that came in the land. And that was a very serious famine, a very serious thing to happen to them at this particular time because the people had left their fields and their crops to go build the walls. They were already in a bad economic condition, and then this famine comes. But then on top of that, 
There was also heavy taxation that came from the Persian government. And so in order to buy food, in order to pay their taxes, many of the people began to borrow money. And that's where all the trouble started. Now I want you to notice first this evening as we discuss this, the economic condition of the people. If we look once again at verse 1 of the text, it says, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Now, when we first read that verse, I said, pay particular attention to this phrase, and of their wives. And that's a very significant statement because uh, in that economy or in, that, in the way that they lived there, the wives were often not involved in public affairs. And so you wouldn't hear about wives speaking out. But here things become so desperate, they're, they're, things are going so wrong that the wives are prodding their husbands to stand up and do something about it. Take a stand for something, just do something, but try to end this problem that we have. So they're complaining. Now, if we were to translate that phrase directly from the Hebrew, it comes out this way. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's the Hebrew And the mamas weren't happy. And the reason they weren't, because they didn't have enough food to feed their children. They were borrowing money, uh, and they mortgaged their property in order to, to pay taxes, in order to buy food. And then they even had to sell their children into slavery. When they couldn't pay the loans, the creditors took their children. Now, the peculiar thing about this is that it wasn't the Persians that were doing this. It wasn't the Persian people, it wasn't the, the captors of, or the government that was over Israel that was causing this problem. They weren't causing them to be slaves or indentured servants. The people who were guilty here are the Jews themselves. The, these are people, their own people are taking them as slaves. Now, what's the problem? Well, the Jews are right back once again breaking God's laws Only here we find them breaking God's law in a different way than they had before. So we notice, first of all, as we think about their economic condition, that sin produced this protest. And whenever people become unhappy, especially when God's people become unhappy, you can just rest assured that sin is the culprit. Sin is behind it when God's people are not happy. Now, what had caused these walls to be broken down in the first place? It was sin. It was idolatry. God had allowed uh, the Babylonians to come in and tear down the walls. He allowed their sacred temple to be destroyed. And it was sin that was the problem. Israel had gone after false gods. But now we come to a time when Israel had been revived. They got back on the right track. The walls are being rebuilt. The temple had already been rebuilt. But then sin starts to creep back in. And what the devil is doing, he's working on the inside. And that's always the devil's tactic when he's unable to stop the work from the outside, as he did here. I mean, the the people on the outside couldn't stop Nehemiah from what he was doing. So the devil just moved to the inside, and he tries some other way in order to, 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 to get these people to turn away from God. And what he did here was to feed the greed, feed the natural greed that's inherent in most people. And what these Jews began to do was charge exorbitant amounts of interest on money that they loaned. Then when the debts couldn't be repaid... They seized the lands that were mortgaged. And then when that money ran out and they could no longer pay the payments and the interest on, on the loans that they took out, then they began to take their children as slaves. And all of that was a sinful thing to do because this was against the law that God had already established. 
Now, this evening, I'm not going to talk so much about borrowing and lending money. And that would be a real good subject for us to talk about. But I'll tell you something that I've learned. Over the years, I've learned that when you lend money to people in your church, lend only as much money as you can afford to lose. And I'm not going to explain that statement. And it's sad that I have to say it, but lend only as much money as you can afford to lose. And then when you've done that, consider that it's a gift. But let me go on. The the Jews lent money and they required of their brothers this interest payment. And that was actually against God's law. And because they were breaking the law, this is why there was trouble. Now let me read to you what God's requirements were on how the Jews could lend money to one another. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. God said, Thou shalt not lend upon usury. That means interest. Thou shalt not lend upon interest to thy brother usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother or to your own people thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all thou settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess it. So the Jews were allowed to lend money to one another, but they weren't allowed to charge interest on the money that they loaned. Now, a question comes up, did this apply in all cases? Is this the the established law? And in all cases, they can loan money, but they can't charge any interest. Well, most people don't believe that. They believe that this didn't hold true for commercial transactions. For instance, if you borrow money to start a business, it was all right to charge a fair amount of interest, and and that would be expected. Because if you invest in another person's business, then you ought to receive some of the return on their profits. So that wouldn't be a bad thing to do. But what this refers to is that when there is distress and when there is poverty and when people really have a need, then they couldn't charge any interest on the money that they loaned. And the idea behind this was that the person who was of means or a wealthy person was to be compassionate towards the poor. And what this is, it really comes down to the underlying principle of God's laws. God's law says to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we all remember this, that when Jesus came into the world, when he came into this world to to pay the debt for our sins, he never required anything from us. He never said that I I need you to pay me something for this. He never allowed us to contribute even one single thing to our salvation. And the reason that he said that was because we have nothing at all to contribute. We are in poverty. We're poor and we're destitute when it comes to any spiritual things. And so God can't require anything from us and neither would God accept anything. And so when the people break break God's law, as they did here, sin and unhappiness is the result. So strife and contention is always the result when you disobey God. Now, I also want you to see, secondly, that stress revealed the weakness. The pressure of building the wall along with this famine revealed the weakness that these people had. Now, somebody might say, well, if we had never started building the wall, then we never would have had all of these problems. Even the wall is the cause of our problem. But the wall is not their problem. What the wall did and the building of it was only, uh, only did this, was to reveal the weakness that they already had. These people were weak in the faith. They were weak towards God. And so the wall didn't do anything but reveal that weakness. And folks, this is what happens when the church starts moving forward for the Lord. When a church starts to make progress, those that are weak and those that are unspiritual have their weaknesses exposed. 
See, it's not the work of the church or the business of the ch- business of the church that causes people to get into a disgruntled state. All that that does, all the work that the church does and the work of the Lord really does is to reveal that people are disgruntled, that they've got problems. So it's not God's work that causes your problem. It's the fact that you're weak towards the things of God. You know, I think this is true when a pastor begins to preach about doctrine. People in, in, in our fundamental churches today are, are so used to fluff when it comes to the preaching of God's Word that when you begin to challenge them that they need to think about things that you're preaching and when you give them some strong doctrine to mull over and to apply to their lives, they get unhappy about that. They're not used to having to think for themselves. And so there are people that you preach to when you try to preach strong doctrine to them, they become confused and dazed. And they sit in the congregation and they look at the preacher like a deer in the headlights. And what they would really rather do, rather than have the preacher preach strong doctrine to them, they want to go back to the status quo. They'd really like to go back to what they've heard before, easy believism and the pharisaical preaching of things like whether women should or should not wear pants. I'm not going to spend all my time on those kinds of things. The wall did not create the problem. It only showed that they had a problem. And the problem was that while they pretended to be God's people, there was no real repentance in their hearts. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, What good is it to build great evangelical institutions, constructing walls against the evil of our opposing secular world, if within the walls the so-called people of God are indistinguishable from those without? What good is it to preserve a, a separate Christian identity... If Christians behave like unbelievers, to put it in sharp terms, we need to stop calling the world to repent until we repent ourselves. Now, do you know there's some people who would read that statement and they, they'd, be, they'd be ready to give a big, hearty amen to that. Oh, they would amen that statement. And then they would relegate what Boyce had to say to something like making rules for people, like the length of skirts that you need to wear, or the length of your hair, or whether a woman wears godly culottes or ungodly culottes. And they completely missed the point of what he's talking about. And that's because Boyce was not a half-crazed fundamentalist. He was talking about the attitudes that people have in Christian churches where they can be as condemning as the world that's on the outside of the church. He was talking about prideful, judgmental Christians. And he was talking about Christians who can feign love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And all the time that they do that, they have no trouble at all cutting that person down behind their back and talking about what they do. He's talking about our fundamentalist churches that are so ethically challenged that they can use tongues and their tongues and deceit to cut somebody else's ministry in half. When we start to learn the true doctrines of the Bible and the truth of God's Word, it reveals our weaknesses. And it should reveal our weaknesses, and it ought to teach us to do better. Preachers who preach straight from the Word of God and they preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, they're not too interested in building their own empires. They're not interested in people bowing down to them. They just want people to get right with God. So that brings me to the second point of the message, and that's the emphatic condemnation of Scripture. Now, both Deuteronomy and Leviticus record how this practice of the people was was just a very wrong thing to do. In fact, God was so concerned about righteousness and fairness among the people that he put a system in place to stop their incessant wealth building. 
He, he stopped their love of material things. And the system that God put into place was called the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, but the year of Jubilee. And what happened in the year of Jubilee, this was the 50th year. There was a series of seven years times seven. And then in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee said that all the lands had to be returned to their original owners. All debts were canceled. And all people who were slaves had to be released. I don't have time to read all that tonight, but I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 25 for just a moment. Let me read just a few verses to you about this. Leviticus 25, third, third book of the Old Testament. Leviticus 25, verse number 8 says, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement ye shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And ye shall return every man unto his possession. And ye shall return every man unto his family." Now, what was the reason for this? Why would God say that there needs to be this 50th year of Jubilee? Well, actually, what God was doing was balancing out the economic system. The rich would not be able to get richer, and the poor would not get poor. And so what this was designed to do was to show everybody, to show all of the people that what they have belongs to God. Don't get too tied down to your material things, because everything that you have is just on loan to God. And someday or another, you're going to have to give all those things up. These aren't yours. And then secondly, it was to reveal the redemptive work of Christ. Because what Jesus came to do, what he came in this world to do, was to set us free. And when you've been set free from your sins, and you understand where you were, the sin that you were in, and how much your debt against God was, and when you realize that Jesus came and relieved you of that debt, forgave you of that debt, then you want to have compassion upon other people. You see that you were nothing, you deserve nothing, and so you begin to have compassion on others. And you don't want to make yourself the Lord over anyone else. Now, for these Jews to go against what the Scriptures revealed was to upset God's economy. It was to upset the pictures and the types that we have in the Word of God. Now, I want to quickly show you three teachings that we glean from, from Nehemiah's rebuke of the people. Let's go back up here to verse number 7. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7. Let's start there. He says, then I consulted with myself. And Nehemiah simply meant that I sat down, I thought about this, I reasoned it all out. And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, ye exact usury every one of his brother. And I said a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell our brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. Also I said, it's not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine and the oil that ye exact of them. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to his promise. 
So Nehemiah condemned the activity of these Jews on three grounds, three different bases. Number one is the duty of love. Four times in these verses, you'll notice that it, Nehemiah says brother or he says brethren. Now, all of us know this, that we have a different kind of love for our families. There ought to be a closeness within a family. We have a special love that we show to people that are in our families. And so Nehemiah says to them, we did everything that we could to deliver our, our brothers out of their slavery. He said, we even took our money and we bought our brothers and sisters out of slavery. And he says, now are you going to take them back into slavery again? And folks, do you know that's a lesson that churches need to learn? There are many of our churches that, that preach in order to deliver people from their sins. They preach in order to get them saved and they try to deliver them out of the bondage that they're in. And then what do churches do? They turn right back around and they try to put bondage on people once more. And what they do is try to impose all those pharisaical laws. And then when the people don't comply with what they want them to do, those folks are ostracized. They're, they're just cast out. And they're, they're left out of the holy, godly, pious people that are part of the church. Now what happens is, if those people don't serve the Lord because that's what they really need to do or want to do, they serve the Lord because of other people. They serve because there's pressure put on them. They serve because they have to meet somebody else's expectations. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong opinion of what I'm saying. I think that Christians ought to act, walk, talk, dress, and look like Christians. We really ought to. But we don't do it because we're forced into some kind of fundamentalist cloning. We do it because we love the Lord. We don't do it because we're going to be cast out of the fellowship of our Baptist churches because we don't look and act and do things that they do. That's not the reason we do these things. We do them because we love Christ. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ." That's where we, the reason that we do it. Now, secondly, their practices were condemned on the, do, on the basis of the duty of obedience. Now, Nehemiah went right back to the principles of God's word. And Nehemiah told these people no less than what God required. He pulled out the book of the law. He pulled out God's word. And he said, here's what we need to do. This is what God's word says. He says, you're charging this high rate of interest. God said, that's not right. That's against God's laws. And that has been forbidden in his word. So Nehemiah called them back to the obedience of God's revealed word. Now, folks, that's all that we have to preach. We only have God's word to preach. I don't have any right to demand from anybody in this church anything more than what God demands himself. So we don't put needless burdens upon people. And when I get up to preach, you don't expect me to preach my personal opinions. You don't come to hear that. You don't come to hear unwarranted extrapolations of Scripture that I might give you. I may give you an opinion, but I promise you we'll back opinions up with Scripture. There's got to be a reason for this, not just because I say it. So here we are. We, we pay attention to God's Word, and when we do that, that stops the protest. Now, thirdly, he condemned their practice on the basis of the blessing of redemption. And perhaps this is the greatest lesson that we learn here. Look at verse number 8. The first part of the verse says, We, after our abilities, have redeemed 
our brethren, the Jews. Now, when Nehemiah said that, these people were very, very familiar with the concept of redemption. The people of Israel were redeemed out of their slavery in Israel. They were redeemed out of slavery among the Babylonians. I just mentioned the year of Jubilee, and the Israelites were very familiar with redemption because of the year of Jubilee. Also, all the Israelites were required to bring an offering of redemption money to the temple and also to the tabernacle when the tabernacle was there. So they were very familiar with the concept of redemption. But we notice here that Nehemiah inserts a personal note into verse 8 because he tells them that he was responsible personally and there were some others of the people who were also responsible personally for buying people out of slavery. Now, what that taught the people was redemption. But the people, through their practices, were tearing down this principle that God had given of redemption. Now, we know that the whole purpose of God choosing Israel was to redeem a people for himself. The purpose of Christ coming into the world was to die for his people and redeem those people to himself. And I might add that when Christ came to redeem us, those that are redeemed are, in fact, truly redeemed. There's nobody that's redeemed in prospect. I'm afraid that's the way that most of our preaching goes today, that redemption is not really redemption. But folks, let me tell you, when Jesus died to save a certain people, those people will be saved. And they actually do become Christ's possession. There's nobody who's been redeemed who won't fully be redeemed. Now, when these people put their brothers back into bondage, that was destructive of this picture that we have of the permanent redemption that we have in Christ. It destroyed the picture that once Christ has paid for our sins, once he has redeemed us to God, that that is a redemption that lasts forever. You don't put people back under bondage again. They can't come back under the bondage of Satan again because they've been bought by Christ. They're redeemed by him. And that's why, you know, that's why I said just a moment ago about the song, it is well with my soul. Why can we sing that? Because we've been redeemed. We've been truly redeemed by Christ. Paul said in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So Paul doesn't say there that he might redeem us. He has hopes to redeem us. I mean, surely, if people will just, if God says, if people will just accept this offer that I'm pleading for them to accept, to take on their own, if they'll just do that, I will redeem them. That's a totally wrong picture. There is redemption through the blood of Christ. The Bible says, even the forgiveness of our sins. And if your sins have been forgiven, you are truly redeemed. And it doesn't make any difference what your response to that is. Now, folks, the Old Testament teaches in type what the New Testament tells us in reality. We are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. This isn't hope so. It's not maybe so. It's not dependent upon human responses or whether anybody trots down the aisles right here. It's not dependent upon that at all. Redemption, the Bible says, has been obtained for God's people. Now, let me move on and let's get the third part of the message tonight. We have the economic condition of the people and the emphatic condemnation of the Scriptures. Now, thirdly, let's talk for just a few minutes about the excellent character of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a very godly man. He was the type of man who wasn't swayed by personal opinions. He was the type of person that wasn't seeking some kind of a political answer. What's politically correct to do in this situation? He wasn't worried at all about offending the wealthy Jews that lived in Jerusalem. And certainly he didn't want to trample on downtrodden people. I mean, people that are already in some kind of distress. So how did Nehemiah show his great character? 
First of all, he feared God. Nehemiah wasn't your ordinary governor. The other rulers that had been in Jerusalem before this and over that territory, these were men who took tribute from the people. And they took that tribute in order to support their lavish lifestyles. But we find out from reading the book of Nehemiah that for 12 years, Nehemiah was the governor. And in all of that time, he never took anything from the people. He never required anything from them. And not only that, he didn't take anything from the king either. Now you might say, well, I understand why he didn't take anything from the people. I mean, the people are poor and he doesn't want to add to their burden. So why not take something from the king? Well, Nehemiah wouldn't do that because then Jerusalem becomes a losing proposition for the king. The king has to support the government there and send money without receiving anything from the people. Then the only choice that he has is to impose a tax on them. He has to start taxing them heavily again in order to support the government there. But Nehemiah didn't allow that to happen. Look at verse number 15. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but so did not I because of the fear of God. So Nehemiah set an example. He, he didn't demand anything from the people that he was unwilling to do himself. And so when he told these rulers, these wealthy people of the Jews, you can't charge this interest. Give this back to them. You can't charge them because it's against the word of God. Well, Nehemiah couldn't turn around then himself and charge the people to support his government. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah was evidently a very wealthy person. And so what he did, he took his own wealth. He supported the government there himself. He fed not only himself for this whole 12 years without taking a dime from anybody else, but he also fed 150 people besides. All those that were in the government, Nehemiah took care of them. And so none of the government was run on the backs of the people. Why did he do it? Because he feared the Lord. He feared because any other action wouldn't have been consistent with what he learned from the Word of God. So, you know, we we don't fear God because he's a tyrant. We fear God because we reverence Him and we bow down because, to Him because we understand that He always does all things well and obedience to God's way of doing things is always the best for God's people. That always gives you the best life possible. Then secondly, His character was excellent because He felt for the people. He had genuine compassion for them. He, he truly had compassion on these people and the difficulties that they had even as Christ had compassion. The Word of God tells us that when Jesus saw the multitudes of people without a shepherd, when he saw that they were poor, the Bible says he was moved with compassion upon them. Now what Nehemiah did, he had compassion on the people, and so he began to distribute even out of his own wealth to help the people. And isn't that exactly what Christ did? Christ, out of the storehouses of his riches, freely gave to us. He never asked us a dime in return. And as he did that, he also associated himself with us. And that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That the great God of this universe would come and associate himself with poor, destitute people as we are. And yet that's exactly what Christ did. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Now you recognize this as a messianic prophecy. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus became just like us, and that's because he felt compassion for our helpless condition. Then finally, 
Nehemiah showed great character because he was a fellow laborer. Look at verse number 16. Yea, also, I counted or continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. What Nehemiah did was to set an example. I mean, his giving nature was emulated by his servants, and his working nature was emulated by them as well. And so Nehemiah set a great example here. And for leadership, this is what we all have to do if we're in leadership. If you are a giving person, that will teach people to be giving people. And if you are a working person, it teaches other people to be working people. And so this is what Nehemiah did. His servants took on the character of Nehemiah, and they worked in this the same way that he did. Nehemiah joined himself to the work. He came right with the people and worked side by side with them. And you know what that tells us? It tells us that our testimony is invaluable. How you live your life, what you do with your life, what your character is, that will always influence people for or against Jesus Christ. Remember your testimony influences people for or against Jesus Christ. So what we have here in this chapter tonight is is a great lesson on dealing with inner conflicts. How do we ultimately resolve inner conflicts when there are divisions among us? We have to go right back to the Word of God. We have to be exactly what God wants us to be. Opposition from without is hard to deal with. Opposition from within is even harder to deal with. But here we see Nehemiah was totally successful in his work because he went right back to God's word when he did what was right, no matter what anybody thought, no matter what personal opinions were, he just simply stuck with the word of God. So what did the people do? Well, we read it in verse 12 a moment ago. Nehemiah said, release the slaves, give back the land, give back this exorbitant interest that you've charged to the people. And what did they do when he challenged them? Verse 12 says, then said they, we will restore them, We will require nothing of them, so will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priest and took an oath of them that they should do according to his promise. So the people repented. Everybody repented. I mean, even the priests were guilty of this. They they were right in this. I mean, they were complicit in the whole thing. And they also repented of it. So what Nehemiah did was to take a pledge from them. And just like a notary notarizes a legal agreement... Nehemiah took that oath and said, you're going to stick by this. And then he did something that was kind of peculiar. Um, He did something symbolic. The Bible says he shook out his lap. Look at verse number 13. It says, also, I shook my lap and said, so God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did according to his promise. The symbolism of what Nehemiah did, he stood up, let the folds of his garments fall out, and he shook his lap out. And what he was saying there, if you renege on the promise that you've made, God will shake you down. God will shake you out. There's your last statement tonight. God will shake you down unless you repent and follow him. So what does God call us to do? Trust Him. Put all of our trust in Him. Rely upon His Word. And then be an example for other people. So Nehemiah was able to say in verse number 19, Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. And the lesson in that is, when you obey, and not until you obey, can you claim the promises of God. So Nehemiah was able to ask for the blessing of God because he put all of his dependence on him. 
And he showed the people who his God was and what he stood for. So here's what we need to do. We need to pray that the enemy stays out there. Our enemies are out there and they shouldn't be in here. Let's pray that we don't have any enemies on the inside. And there won't be if we all go back to God's word and just do simply what God says. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for lessons that we learn here. Sometimes what we have to dig out of your word may seem to be a little bit obscure, uh, sometimes hard to find, but there are beautiful nuggets of truth that are found throughout your word. Help us to understand those things better, Lord, and more than just understand them, help us to apply them. Be with your people tonight. Bless us as we sing this invitation. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.